What do you know about Jesus? Were you raised in church but know there's more to the story than the words on the page? Was his name forbidden in your home and no one ever explained why? My name is Miri Nadler and I'm curious about everything, especially the first century. Join me as we read through the Gospel of Matthew chapter by chapter and discuss the cultural, historical, and archaeological discoveries that will satiate our curiosity for who Jesus really is, what he really taught, and why those things changed the world as we know it. Welcome to Jesus Curious. Welcome everyone to Jesus Curious. I'm your host, Mary Nadler, and I am so flipping honored to welcome our guest, my friend, Dr. Sophia Megayanis. And I know I didn't pronounce that with all of your flair in Spanish, but you are just incredible. I am so thrilled that you took the time out of your busy schedule, especially during this time of year to join me. And I know that we've been friends for a while, but you are just a woman in the top of your field. And I just, I love that you're here. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Well, the key to my last name is that the two L's are like tortilla, that's a Y. And also sometimes I can be boring. So it's like saying yawn, like there's a big <laughs> yawn in the middle of my last name. So Magallanes. Magallanes. Okay. <laughs> and um, you are a professor at Fresno Pacific University, which, believe it or not, is where my mom went. Really? She wow. did. And it is, I don't know if it still has this reputation anymore, but it, it is a Mennonite school. Yes. yes. Definitely. <laughs> so has the like Mennonite yearly uh, convention or meetup happened yet where they have all the quilts and things? Oh, no. I don't know anything about that. Oh. <laughs> But I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it's something. It's yeah. something. And they'll have people that will do like your genealogy for you. They're really into that. Well, I don't know if they'll have your genealogy because you kind of have to be Mennonite for them to know if you're related to anybody. <laughs> but they'll have incredible quilts. And then they'll have people that are part of, you know, like an old order Mennonite kind of yeah. system that with the hats and the suspenders and all of that stuff come out and it's it's a sight wow that's yeah well I'm glad I did 23 and me then (laughs) (laughs) definitely so um well my mom's not Mennonite but she did go there so we went to plenty of those things and um there they even have in that area, or at least they did when I was a kid, you know how they have Jewish community centers, JCCs? Yeah. They have MCCs, which are Mennonite community centers. Wow. And those include mainly quilting circles. (laughs) Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and 
they do not play. Like you have to know what you're doing to join the quilting yes. circle. <laughs> so they will kick you out. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's ironic that like their general ed Bible course is referred to as JCC because it's Jesus and the Christian community. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so you are of Mexican descent yes. and every week we start out with a fun story from Israel Cool. and I wanted to kind of include your Mexican culture into this week's story. Ooh. <laughs> so, <laughs> there is a Jewish community in Mexico. Okay. It's small and mighty. Um, but Mexican food and Israelis don't typically go together. Wow. Yeah. I wouldn't imagine. So, so you may remember that maybe, I don't know, five years ago, there was a restaurant in Los Angeles called Mexico sure. You don't wow. remember that? I do not, but I am intrigued. So Mexicosher was the first kosher restaurant of its kind that served Mexican food because that is extremely hard to make kosher because Mexican food, they delight in, in uh, combining dairy and meat together. (laughs) So, and, and oftentimes lard, Uh, but you know, you don't have to include that. So it was a guy who was half Japanese, half, Mexican, I think, at least Latino of some stripe. Uh-huh. And um, and he just liked a challenge. And so he said, I'm going to have a gourmet Mexican restaurant, but make it kosher. That is awesome. <laughs> and the fact about him is, and I don't have his name, but he went on Top Chef and he won. That's so cool. Right, because he, he's really good, because he loved the challenge. And now there's a Mexico show in New York, but it's no longer in Los Angeles. However, everyone in L.A. was singing its praises because there were plenty of people in L.A. that were like, yeah, I you know, became religious, and now I can't have Mexican food anymore. And I love Mexican food. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they didn't have any. So I found this article, and it's from a while back. It is from... 2012, but it's from Haaretz. It's called A Tastier Taco and the Quest to Make Israelis Love Mexican Cuisine. (laughs) So, and the subtitle says, Israelis have always loathed Mexican food. Restaurateurs hope their new higher quality product will change local skepticism, not to say revulsion. Yeah. <laughs> so um they go through a lot of stuff at the beginning of the article talking about how lots of people have tried to bring Mexican food into Israel and everything has failed. Like nobody's liked it. And Israelis couldn't really understand the spices because they could understand Middle Eastern spices, but they couldn't understand Mexican spices. And also Mediterranean food is a much cleaner food. It's just like, it's, they use the term fresher, which I don't think is fair to Mexican food, but it's just not as fried. 
It's not as stewed. It's more kind of like freshly grilled, kind of, you know, not as, not as like long cooked to, to say, Mm -hmm. to say the least or marinated. So, um, there, (laughs) there's this, um, part of the article that says in recent years, a handful of Mexican dishes have managed to infiltrate Israeli culture. Nachos, meaning chips with bland salsa are served in bars and wraps, meaning tortillas filled with strange combinations like chicken schnitzel, diced tomatoes, and tahina are on cafe menus. A few restaurants have even tried offering Latin Mexican oriented menus, but they have quickly shut down, leaving a trail of under seasoned and overly tart guacamole behind them. <laughs> and, um, and then they're, are, they're trying to introduce tequila back into Israel as well, because a lot of Israelis only see tequila as a means of getting drunk because they've only been introduced to low quality tequila and um, not like something to be really enjoyed because there aren't any, um, uh, what is tequila made out of? It's made out of the, um, what's that? Agave. Yeah, the agave plant. That's correct. Yes, you are correct. <laughs> so, cause they don't have any cactus in Israel. And, um, there was one part of this that I thought that was so funny. So hold on, let me find it. So there's a dude named Ehrlich who is, is trying to put this like really high end Mexican food into his bar. And it says anyone who encounters the Mexican culinary tradition for the first time in his bar, which is popular with employees of the Mexican embassy and recently expanded to accommodate increasing demand or the Tel Aviv restaurant Mexicana is provided (laughs) This is the best part is provided with illustrated instructions on how to eat a taco. Wow. <laughs> is that what happens is that if you don't cook the, if you don't uh, heat the tortilla enough so that it inflates, that it, it, it ends up crumbling for yes. a lot of people who don't heat it. And then, yes. all, yeah. Oh my. <laughs> so, um, Yeah. Needless to say, they're having a little bit of a time of it. And uh, what they finally decided is that near the end of the article, they say, we're going with something called fresh mix. We take the idea of Tex-Mex, which is American style fried fatty food and make it a saner way. We don't use fat in the restaurant. Everything is slow cooked in the oven. Everything is fresh. So that makes a lot more sense because most Mediterranean food is very low in fat. It's very lean. And so a lot of uh, Americans are super excited that there's like a Mexican restaurant they can eat at. Although, I don't know, I still probably as a native Californian would decide not to. Well, I think like in the time that I've spent in in Europe, uh, usually I I haven't had... I, I haven't had a good Mexican meal. It always is filtered through Texas or California. I, I, I would imagine, though, that there would be a lot more success for, like, it, uh, 
people from Mexico making food, uh, especially Mexican Jewish people, <laughs> to to corner the market in in Israel. Because I mean, there the fried element of it is because of basically immigration and diaspora of like Mexican uh, people in California and Texas. Yes, and, and so it's like it's not the same. And so I know that like my family members, like if they heard about like the Israeli people, you know, being challenged with it not being fresh, they'd be like, oh. Right, you know, they they would be shocked, but then there's this idea of like, oh, the world has had the United States to mediate (laughs) the culinary food of Mexico. Precisely, and I think too, it's about um, they are, you know, they put um, like many spices into everything, or like kind of just maybe swapping out coriander with um, uh, whatever, you know what I mean? So like just swiping out spices so that it feels just a little bit more familiar to them. But I have to tell you, so one thing that Israel is really about is malls, shopping malls. Mm -hmm. They love their shopping malls. It has not died in Israel at all. And, um, food courts. They love food courts. And you can get anything there. Chinese. They even, they did have Mexican, but I took one look, girl. Yeah. I had no idea what they were trying to serve there. I couldn't figure it out. So, and you know, the kind of people that you get working at a shopping mall food court in Israel are the same kinds of people that you have working at a shopping mall food court here in the United States, teenagers, you know, people that aren't going to put as much love and in, probably into the food yeah. <laughs> as you would in a nice restaurant or something like that. So, um, but I think that Israel has like the unique pro- problem in that so many people who live there are immigrants Mm-hmm. and especially Western immigrants mm-hmm. and Western immigrants are used to having a wide variety of food to choose from. Mm-hmm. And one of the common complaints of people that like, are even just traveling to Israel for a couple of weeks or is like, I'm kind of sick of all of the pickled stuff and the hummus and the, you know, pita and the shawarma and the Mediterranean food. I'd love to just have like, Chinese leftovers or a burger or something like that. Yeah, I, I spent a month in Israel and in, in, uh, the Negev, so at Ben Gurion University as a research assistant. And just within that month, I lost fifteen pounds. Oh, really? It was crazy! It was awesome. <laughs> 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 Drinking a lot of water, uh, eating Mediterranean food, and I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> this yeah. is awesome. yeah." It's mainly just protein and vegetables and pickled stuff. Uh huh. So whenever you sit down at a table in Israel, they hit, they have like 15 little mini salad things for you to choose from and put onto your, your plate. So, but yeah, my kids got tired of it real fast. They just wanted to go to McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs) And then at McDonald's, you can get the American burger, which is literally like a pound patty. Whoa. (laughs) That is crazy. (laughs) 
kosher though. Kosher. I mean, it tasted better, but yeah, not my favorite. (laughs) So that's a little article that I pulled for you, my dear. Um, Don't try. So I'm glad that you didn't have Mexican food to try because you would have probably not loved it. But my, my Mexican encounter in uh, the Gal, you know, Galilee region was very, very positive. There, I don't know, you probably know this, that at Magdala, uh-huh. there is a, a Mexican priest who felt called to open a retreat center for women. Oh, really? And so as they were, oh, the, the, the church is beautiful. And it has like glass where you can overlook. You can they have mass that in the background. There's no wall. It's just um, you can. It overlooks the Galilee, and the uh, table for the for the mass is a boat, and there yes, that is the cross. Very cool. But in front, the retreat center, they had to stop building it because when they excavated it, they found. Um, a Jewish synagogue from the first century. It's the only one that they have been able to uncover in the Galilee region. It's gorgeous. It, really? And you enter into the, the whole center and the excavation site, you see an Israeli flag and then you see a Mexican flag. <laughs> and from his parish back in, in Mexico, go and volunteer to excavate. Or at least this was back in 2015. That's awesome. You know, uh, when, whenever I'm there, the language that I hear the most besides Russian, uh, you know, of course, besides Hebrew, you know, and and Arabic is in Russian is Spanish. Same. Spoke a lot of Spanish (laughs) in Israel. Surprisingly. And I would think that maybe a lot of it, there's a lot of Catholic tours um, or uh, pilgrimage tours, but I don't think that all of them are. I mean, I, there were a lot of Spanish speakers, like a lot of Spanish speaking tours at um, Masada, which is not Mm -hmm. at all a pilgrimage site, I would think for, you know, Catholic tours or something like that. So yeah. I, I met a lot of Jewish people from Spain and Argentina. Oh, really? Yeah. So yeah. their accent must have been really funky. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, we didn't speak English, so. <laughs> uh. <laughs> you know, but I spoke mo- mostly Hebrew and Spanish. I, my Hebrew is terrible. Mostly it consisted of saying that I don't speak it. And then like, oh, but you're speaking it now. And they start speaking. And I can understand it just based on like, right. like for the past 20 years uh, do, engaging in Hebrew scriptures, you know, I can understand, I can speak it. No, but, uh, you know, usually if I, if I say I cannot, like I have like there, I know Hebrew, they're like, no, <laughs> I think you can. And then they'll start <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> okay. we're doing you know, one thing i will say about spanish-speaking communities is that they are really into naming their kids these like they, they pull out these old testament names like you oh, wouldn't yeah. believe they're really great at that and i think it might have something to do with it sounds really good in spanish 
you know, like, it's not just like, I really like this prophet or something like it just kind of like it, like Ruben sounds great in Spanish, you know? And so we pull out that one, whereas we don't pull it out so much in English, but um, you know, my oldest son, Saul, when I first had him, he was a little baby. I goes to, I go to my first appointment and it's in LA and the lady goes, Saul, Saul, you know, Saul's mom. And I go up to him. I say, Oh, you know, his name's Saul. And she goes, oh, no, 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 no. His name is Saul. This is a Spanish name. <laughs> yeah. She goes, I'm Mexican. I know this. Oh, my goodness. Oh my <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> I mean, it was closer to the original Hebrew than yeah. Saul. So I was like, you know what? I give, sure. <laughs> so. Awesome. Okay, lady, let's dig in to the text, Mm -hmm. Sermon on the Mount. Um, When we get to Matthew 5, so far, according to the text, Jesus has um, called four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, um, which I discussed. I had my husband on last week, (laughs) and we discussed it's kind of like... uh, the, the ones he calls her is a juxtaposition between like the two rich fishermen and the two poor fishermen. <laughs> and um, Peter and Andrew being the poor kind of entrepreneurial fishermen and James and John um, working with their father who has servants and um, who many suspect uh, funded a lot of the ministry of Jesus him and he and his wife, which is why his wife makes some requests later on. Oh. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so it starts out. Uh, With the, you, yeah, sorry. No problem. <laughs> when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, um, "So, this is my this is a theory I have, and I and I and I'm curious what you think about it regarding the Sermon on the Mount because it is so long." I know that there's been thoughts that maybe it's, uh, you know, a collection of sermons, um, that it wasn't just this one sermon. Why would we have this kind of like word for word sermon? Mm-hmm. And what I discussed last week, um, we talked all about what it meant to be a disciple, which was kind of like this Jedi imitation situation. Um, where you memorized the master's words, you memorized everything that that the master did. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess here is that the Sermon on the Mount is basically kind of a re is a repetition of the teaching of Jesus that was given to the disciples, like a full recitation. I. Well, it definitely um, reflects, like, 
throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, especially in Matthew chapter 14, you have some of the same things being brought up again. And as you know, in Luke, you have the, ser- the same sermon or a very similar sermon, but done on the plain. And mm-hmm. so, um, so people usually point out that in Matthew, it's Jesus on the mountain because it's Moses in the book of Exodus. And that Luke, it's more uh, depicting Jesus um, as Moses speaking on the plains uh, of Moab um, in the book of Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. The correlation is that there's an expansion of um, the audience where, right. you know, the context of Moses giving the Decalogue in Exodus 20 is to those who have just been rescued from Egypt. And then the next, the generation after those who have died in the wilderness are being addressed in Deuteronomy. And so people will make the correlation that in Deuteronomy, um, well, in Luke, um, it's an extension to not only Israel, but also to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world because Luke is trying to extend. He's doing historiography rather than biography. And his the second half of his gospel is in Acts, where it does extend to the nations and the question of what to do with these <laughs> these people <laughs> you, now that it's been extended. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're onto something. Be- and scholars have this theory of, Q. <laughs> they label this unknown source as Q, which is a, a, a abbreviation or like just the first letter of Kelle, which is the word for source in German. And because we've inherited uh, these categories in biblical studies from the German school, scholars still use this idea of this unknown source, maybe oral tradition where it wouldn't involve the memory aspect of the disciples um, reciting the teachings of the master um, or somehow written. But so they just label what the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have in common, especially the sayings and teachings of Jesus. They label it as Q. <laughs> yeah, you knew this already. Um, yeah. Um, but I, I... I think you really have touched on something that is very important. Yes, the Gospels were not written until after they had a need to write them down, where the disciples of Jesus who knew the the teachings of their master by heart because they had been living with him for at least three years, (laughs) you know, uh, because there are theories as to whether or not it was three or not. We get the the number three from... uh, John because of three Passovers that he, but we don't know if maybe it was like three to five years that they were traveling with Jesus. And, um, but yeah, you're right. It, there wasn't a need to write down uh, as we have it today until after the disciples and witness first eyewitnesses would have died or started to die off. <laughs> right. And it was their sole job to ingest and memorize and imitate everything he did mm-hmm. while they were following him around. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't just to kind of like assist him while he was 
healing everybody or just to be his assistants. And they were, they were, uh, even though they weren't, not all of them were formally educated. Most of them were not, but some would have been because you have um, a zealot, you have um, different people who would have had training, not just fishermen. Um, they, they are depicted as asking a lot of questions and not getting it because in ancient biography, the way that other characters are characterized say more about the main character than the actually those periphery characters. So in other words, the disciples are showing, are, are allowing Jesus to teach more by asking questions and being puzzled. It's like a literary device to move the story along. I've heard it over and over again from pastors and teachers from the pulpit saying, oh, they're so dumb. We are so dumb. And I'm like, excuse me listen look at the genre of the ancient writers like if you look at greco-roman biography that's what people that's how people write about their master teacher right that's how plato wrote about socrates Mm -hmm. um it has less to do with them not having a clue and more about hey let's set jesus up to really expand upon what the kingdom of heaven is Yes. Great. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Well, um, I want to set you up as to why I really wanted you to talk about this because your dissertation, um, your area of expertise is on the book of Job and um, which is for our listeners. I think Job is probably the biggest uh, uh book to tackle in the Old Testament Hebrew-wise because yes. <laughs> it's the most ancient. And it, I I don't know how many words are in Job that don't appear anywhere else, but I know it's at least 13. There's more. <laughs> I'm sure there's more. Um, I did a class, on, like, a, like an interim semester class on Job. Yes. It was a three-week intensive, and it was the worst three weeks of my life. I want... Yeah. I don't know how you buried yourself in it for so long because it's very intense. And I I thought that examining that from wisdom literature perspective Mm -hmm. um, on this um, Beatitudes would be incredibly insightful um, for me personally, (laughs) Um, but also for the listener. Um, Well, I, I made sure that I revisited um, specifically research in Matthew, um, and I I was glad that you know I'm just refreshing my memory. So I wrote some, down some notes here. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in the Old Testament, we have about forty five beatitudes, so blessed yeah. statements. And in the Septuagint, the LXX, so the Greek version of the Old Testament, um, the word makarios is is translated for the Hebrew word ashre. And so, um, and that's what's being used here in Matthew 5. And so we have those declarations, those nine declarations of blessedness. Now in the Greek context, there are, there are synonyms for makarios. One of them is eudaimon. Uh, yeah, eudaimon. 
which is like if you know anything about Aristotelian um, philosophy, it's the goal of humanity. Um, in so eudaimonia is this idea of being in good spirits, basically being in the same state as the gods, <laughs> which is basically without fault, without um, at having a better quality of life, without interruption of human frailty. <laughs> and so from a Greek perspective, this idea of being blessed, that's, that's the reason why the translators of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they would have used makarias as not eudaimonia, not eudaimon, but specifically talking about the possibility, the human capacity of being in a state of of life and joy <laughs> without having to uh, associate it with the gods. Um, but we have, uh, so we have 45 times that you do, that Markarios is used in the uh, Septuagint um, and Ashrei in Hebrew in the Masoretic text and also uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. 26 of the times are in uh, the Book of Psalms. And Include so, Psalm 1? Yes, especially Psalm 1 that like is a wisdom psalm. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it, characteristics of wisdom, as you know, expresses the two ways. Like there are two ways in which someone can conduct their lives. And in the wisdom tradition, there are two types of main types of wisdom, which is um, a skill or a lifestyle. And so this lifestyle, um, this application of your knowledge, basically the lifestyle that is uh I guess commended here, especially in the wisdom tradition, is a lifestyle that fears the Lord or worships and names God as their ultimate authority. Mm-hmm. As you know, ancient Hebrew has very a very limited uh, amount of words. Right. They mean a lot of things. So there's no one Hebrew word that means obedience. There's no one Hebrew word that means worship, but the concept of worship and the concept of obedience is constructed with use of key words. And one of them that is used in both realms is fear. So this idea, it's not about being afraid of God. It is about um, obeying God as sovereign king. So, a lot of the parallels that we have in Book of Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes is this idea that those who fear the Lord are those who do His commandments. And then later on in Ben Sirach or Sirach, um, in the Pseudepigrapha, you have this same development of the concept. Of, actually, in Ben Sirach, you have um, this idea that Fear of the Lord is really, and wisdom is application of Torah. Mm-hmm. And so the reason why wisdom in Proverbs is a woman is because the, the student or the one that is being addressed as the son in Proverbs is beckoned 
to become one, to choose wisdom as a wife, as a good wife, and to become one with her, and to get you know, and thus embody wisdom. And then that's why at the end of Proverbs, you have Proverbs 31, this ideal wife who really is just an embodiment of, if you've been paying attention to all the collections, that she's doing everything that a person who fears the Lord does. Interesting. And it's an acrostic poem. So you have uh, all the 22 characters of the Hebrew alphabet being um, each line of the of the poem at the end of the book of Proverbs, it's from Aleph to Tav. So there's this idea that they do everything from A to Z. <laughs> uh, you know, that she is the embodiment of this. You want a picture of what somebody that fears God? You have this woman. And it even says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And so it's not just, a, I, I, I always tell my students that it's not just a woman, it's anyone who fears the Lord is worthy of praise. And that's what they're really doing in the book of Proverbs. Um, sorry about that. That was a really big tangent. <laughs> but all that just That's not a tangent. That's great. I love that. This blessedness is in some ways prosperity, a flourishing. It's flourishing. Um during so during the time of, uh, after the exile, in Second Temple Judaism, between the Testaments, um, you have a shift of be, a state of being blessed, this idea that those who fear God will get the goodies, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Especially in the book of Job, you have that shift of like, oh, you, this, you're, you're correct in saying that it is the oldest story, but by the time we get it in our Hebrew Bibles, it's being used this story is being used as a parable to those who are innocently suffering um, during the exile. They did. There are. There's that faithful remnant that did not bow before idols, but they are still being carried away in exile mm-hmm. <laughs> and suffering because of this for sins that they did not commit themselves. And so, what we have is that the writer of the book of Job is actually using that well-known story to address the situation in which um, they are innocently suffering. Interesting. Yeah. Um, that goes along with, there's a, this guy on YouTube named Brandon Robbins, who he is excellent. Um, he really very simply puts a lot of New Testament concepts in into its more Judaic context for people. He's a Methodist minister, I believe, but he trans he uh, translates the Makarios as "You will be truly content when." Mm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So yeah. it would be like you will be truly content when you are poor in spirit because. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. You will be truly content when you mourn because you will be comforted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is, that, that goes, that's exactly on the head 
And I, I was one of the commentaries that I was looking at. They put it this way: "Happy are the unhappy, for God will make them happy." <laughs> <laughs> but um, so what I found super, super interesting when I revisited some of my prior notes is that so because people weren't experiencing that blessed state because not everybody has job's turnaround story you know mm -hmm. some people died during the exile and never were vindicated for being the righteous people that they really were um and then later on like during um this time of just being conquered by other like just world powers over and over again after re even returning to the land you know uh after exile and rebuilding and you know you still were under a persian administration and then afterwards greek and the greeks and then the romans so pe people started especially people at qumran mm -hmm. um they started speaking about this blessedness um as being a future, an eschatological hope. So something that's gonna happen when God makes everything new. So they associated it specifically with Isaiah 60. And I love this resource. It's called uh, Jesus in, Con uh, in Context, Background Readings for Gospel Reading. If you don't have it, it's amazing. Uh, and I'm not plugging it. I'm not getting the commission from it or anything. I love it because it takes a lot of um, Jewish and apocryphal, like pseudepigraphic, um, pseudepigraphic uh, information. So you can read Jesus within view of people at Qumran, people, uh, and, it, and it goes throughout each passage. Like it goes through the Beatitudes and it gives you direct, like you don't have to, I mean, basically it's done the research for you. And so you have right there alongside Jesus, like you can be reading the Bible and you can be seeing the words of, you know, different passages from Qumran. Um, well, it was associated with Isaiah 61. So as we know, Jesus in Luke says, like actually is depicted as reading the Isaiah scroll saying that the spirit of the Lord is upon me, mm -hmm. you know, and so the year of Jubilee and all of that, um, well, the, anyone in that day who is hearing uh, Jesus or being associated with Isaiah 61, especially if they were from the Qumran community or influenced by the Qumran community, um, they would be like, he's declaring him the Messianic Age. Because that's the thing is, um, it's this eschatological hope is when Messiah comes. And also, I was reading that it's connected to Elijah, the coming of Elijah first, mm -hmm. and the Messiah. And so anybody who was hearing these blessed statements, who was awaiting the Messiah, they would be like, okay, he's opening his mouth and he's saying basically he's bringing in this messianic age. Yes. He himself is Messiah. And this declaration of joy and a contentment, as you said, that was so, that, I, I love the way that he translated that and how, how you um, 
how you, how you made me know that this this man translated it that way. Can you read it again? The, the idea of contentment. You will be truly content when, or you can be truly content when. Yes. Oh, yeah. So I was reading about it. The, the Beatitudes are also called wisdom blessings, which it gives it an ethical kind of flavoring to it. Anything from the wisdom tradition has to do with doing the right thing, living the right lifestyle. And because if you look at it from a wisdom perspective, it becomes kind of like requirements for entering into the kingdom of God. So it's just, it, it has that echo of when you do this, this will happen. You will be blessed mm. or you will be blessed when you find yourself in this situation or in this state. Well, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, how a lot of Christians um, misuse the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Mm-hmm. Whereas Paul is saying, I have been rich. I have been poor. Yeah. I can be all, I can be either rich or poor through yes. the Messiah. Yeah. And I can do either one. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's kind of like, saying I can be content in in every state because mine is the kingdom of heaven because all of the this is just dust. Yeah. Um it's just vanity because eternity is is the treasure, correct? You know, that's that's mm-hmm. basically what it's saying. Um these earthly things are are in and and people's earthly opinions are um so temporal. Yeah. Um, but I would like to read it in that way though. Um, if you don't mind, please do. Yeah. So, um, you can be truly content when you are poor in spirit for yours is the kingdom of heaven. You can be truly content when you mourn for you will be comforted. You can be truly content when you are gentle for you will inherit the earth. You can be truly content when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. You can be truly content when you are merciful, for you will receive mercy. You can be truly content when you are pure in heart, for you will see God. You can be truly, uh, you can be truly content when you are a peacemaker, for you will be called sons of God. You can be truly content when you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. You can be truly content when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who you, who were before you. Um, I think it... It, like, I think that there is, um, when you say, like, you can be truly content, there's a choosing there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it also goes along with the idea of Jesus saying that you have to be like a child. Because children, taught, especially in the ancient world, had nothing. Had no mm-hmm. status, no say. And this this 
idea that if anything gets in the way of you entering into the kingdom of God, cut it off, remove it. It's the same, it's like the similar principle, but in multiple ways of like, you know, you're not able to receive the kingdom of heaven if you have your own, if you have, if you're not counting on God to be in some ways the lifter of your head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, with the with the last one, um, and I know that uh, you you know uh, a friend uh, Nick who yeah. passed away this summer, and Nick um, he was a believer, very strong believer um, in Yeshua, and um, also an Orthodox Jewish person, mm-hmm. and. Um, I, he drove everybody a little nuts, (laughs) but he was, uh, he was relentless in studying Torah. He was relentless in his faith for Yeshua. He was relentless in living his life as a Jewish person. He was not an evangelist by any means. He was not somebody that would sit on a street corner or try to get every person he knew to you know, tell them the gospel or anything. He just wanted to live his life as a Jewish person and learn as much as he possibly could. And, um, but because of that, just by living, this guy was kicked out of so many places mm-hmm. um, just because he wanted to pray. Mm-hmm. And um, he was kicked out of, Minion after minion after minion, because without fail, somebody would find out he was a believer. And it's not like he was hiding it. He would just just be himself when go and pray, because that would be the day to day thing that you're going to do if you're an Orthodox Jewish person. And um, you get find out, found out. They would say, I'm sorry, you can't pray here anymore. And um before he would leave, he would say, can I please just have a meeting with the rabbi? Mm-hmm. And um, in the meeting, he would just say, can I just give you the reason for the hope that I have? Yeah. Yeah. Not trying to convince anybody, but this is the reason for the hope that I have in Messiah Yeshua. Mm-hmm. And they still kick him out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and when it says, um, you know, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Yeah. And, you know, he died very young and I was so, because we were so close, I was so upset, but I was also so conflicted because I was so happy for him. <laughs> because I knew his reward was massive. (laughs) And um, like, I just, that verse just kept coming at me over and over and over again. And um, at his funeral, one of his best friends, when he eulogized him, he said, um, he often thought that just denying Yeshua would have been the easy way out. But he would say, I can't unsee what I have seen. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. And 
I thought, man, you know, if he can live his life in such a way, mm-hmm. why can't I? Why can't anyone? You know, so anyway, that now whenever I read the Beatitudes, I think of, um, I think of Nick because I, and I, and I thought of Nick when I also thought of Job when I thought of Nick, because, because Nick really struggled a lot his whole life. It just felt like, you know, getting to the point where he could have, um, you know, a wife and a family and a home and all of these things that he wanted was so hard. It was not coming. It was not coming. And he was so faithful and setting and setting and setting. In the last three years of his life, it was like all of those things just suddenly came to him. Mm-hmm. Just like in the book of Job where he gets all of his stuff at the end. <laughs> and, um, and uh, he got to, he really thoroughly enjoyed that for a good three years. And then the Lord took him home. And um, of course, I'm sure that he's so thrilled to be in the, you know, in the presence of God that, that can't, um, that cannot uh, be compared to anything that we would have on earth. But everybody was like, but three years, really? (laughs) You waited so long in three years. And I, but you know, God knows better than we do. And I was reminded, you know, but he waited by God. I I felt like I was saying that he waited his whole life to have an eternal father, just like me. Wow. Wow. I, I'm, I'm so thankful that he got to, well, here's the thing is like, I have this idea that he, he really enjoyed his family. He really, yeah, it was three years, but he really enjoyed it. And there, I mean, to the hope, the eschatological hope that we have is that they, he will be with them forever at the end of all things. Wow. He definitely is a powerful testimony of someone who has seen God, who has pure in heart. I think he, you're correct in saying that he embodied a lot of these blessed statements. And it's ultimately that last one, he also, um, he lived that out. So yes, I didn't know him as well as you knew him, but yeah, I, I definitely can see how he lived a blessed life. And that's the thing is it's not always obvious that's, that you, that it's a blessed life. <laughs> it's not like I'm blessed, like um, <clears throat> the way that like we're, it's the absence of chaos, but it's, it's good and there's contentment and there's ultimately a deeper knowledge of the Holy One. That's right. And it's almost like, you know, when they're gone, um, there have been people who've passed where you feel very differently 
about their passing. Mm -hmm. But then there are people who pass and you're just so conflicted because you feel so eternally joyful for them. And so sad for yourself. <laughs> well, yeah, there was this very uh, dear mentor to me um, who uh, I had a, I had a hard time when she was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And my first instinct was to want to run away because my first, my best friend when I was 10 died of leukemia. Mm. And it's really hard for me to lean in on the, like into those relationships because it could kind of confirms that childhood fear of, uh, you know, why should I, they're just going to be gone. And the Lord really prompted my, me and said, you need to be there for your friend. Mm. And, oh, it was so hard. But she was like, after a year with seeing how my friend lived and died, um, I had a renewed sense that heaven, I know it sounds so cheesy, but heaven is real. Mm -hmm. And that I had been living my life as if it was not a reality. Mm. But just having seen, like, I literally felt like I saw her pass into eternity. Wow. I, one of our conversations was one of the last ones that she had, and I could see her like in and out. It was almost like uh, being birthed into eternity. Mm. I don't know if you've sat with people who are passing, but wow, it's, you're correct. Like it's different when there's somebody that you know live their life um, in communion with God. Yes. Yeah. Whew. Uh, it gets so, things get so serious when you read the words of Jesus, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to slow down a little bit. And we're just you know, scratching the surface right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, people... They often say, like, to somebody who hasn't read the Bible before, they say, oh, start with John. And it confuses me so much why people would say that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because they want people to get to John 3.16 or because John mentions love so much. And I just feel like we have such complete teaching mm -hmm. uh, in Matthew. Maybe I'm biased because my husband's name is Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I just really like the book. Um, but And also John starts off in a very kid, kid, way that can be a little bit confusing for people, um, in in my opinion. No, he's but, definitely high Christology. Like, basically, Jesus starts out in the cosmos. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's cosmos. very theological. And I just yeah. feel like ah, there's so much that I, that somebody who's new to the Bible can just soak in from like taking in three chapters of Yeshua's words that, because um, in, you know, in different cultures, there's very different ideas of who Jesus is, you know, Jesus, the healer, Jesus, the liberator, in America, it's often Jesus, the payer of debt. <laughs> um, but uh, I feel so much in Matthew that we get this 
clear idea of Jesus, our teacher. And, um, and I think that can be really be embraced across cultures. Yeah. Um, sitting at the feet of Jesus is really, uh, essential to, uh, our faith. It's discipleship. And we have so many people who are deconstructing their faith. And what I most often feel when people are talking about questioning everything that they've ever learned is how many of these people have had the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus Mm -hmm. and learn. Because a lot of them, I feel, maybe were shoved into service roles Mm -hmm. too early, given a lot. Yeah. Um, were subject to egos of a teacher of some kind of um, theology or something like that. Yeah. Um, but sitting at the feet of Jesus and his teaching is so essential to our faith, viewing him as our teacher. Well, thank you for, I mean, that image is so powerful. Um, the image of especially like, I know this is in Luke, but it's the image of Mary who chooses the, the greater thing of sitting at his feet, at the rabbi's feet, and rather than being caught up in the busyness of doing the obligations of the, the patron or matron of the house that Martha was taking on. Both women are doing classically male roles in the, in the text, where uh, Martha is the head of help, is, is acting as a host as a head of household um, and making sure her guests are served. And though that's very important, but, and a lot of times people want to minimize that, but that word uh, for service is the same word that we get for deacon or deaconess of ministry. And, but it's, as you were talking about that, how people get so busy doing all these things instead of sitting in the blessedness of being a child of God, sitting at at the master's feet, hearing from the rabbi's teaching. And the first words that are depicted in the, uh, of teaching in Matthew is that idea of it's not what you do. Mm -hmm. You are blessed just because you are in touch with, well, in some ways you're ready for the kingdom of heaven. You're in touch with your need for the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. Ready for that encounter with Messiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If we're taking it back to the book of Job, that's mm-hmm. Job has to let go of his need to be right. Mm. Like, yeah, he's stripped of everything, but then, what the whirlwind speeches that God does, he when when Job is encountered, when he encounters a vision of God, he lets go of his need for vindication. Mm. And it wasn't until he lets go of his right to be right that God is the lifter of his head mm. and vindicates him before his friends. Mm. Yeah. 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 Interesting. You know, I think too, it's like in a lot of Christian circles, because we just have so many more teachings from him, we also, we often see Paul as a teacher. 
instead of Jesus himself. Yeah. And, um, and he's our first teacher. He's our master. And I, I mean, I've put forth to people like, you know, with teenagers, I bribe them, bribe them to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. They're to be imitators of Jesus. Like the epistles, they, they can wait. They need to know <laughs> these words. This is the most important to me. <laughs> well, because I'm at a Mennonite school, like that is where this type, this, uh, this ver I guess version or this this tradition of Christianity of Mennonism, mm -hmm. uh, it emphasizes the Sermon on the Mount in that way where it's like, hey, Jesus first, then Paul can can <laughs> wait. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but we get so much theology from Paul. So much of specific theology is wrapped up in his words, and um, everything needs to flow from the master first and interpreted within that. And, and it, it, we have to remember that he didn't know Jesus in the flesh. He knew the resurrected Christ. Yes. So, so to put it into perspective, you, yeah, you do need to know the, the actual living Christ, like pre-resurrection Christ. Mm -hmm. But if you want to know about post-resurrection Christ, then go with Paul. <laughs> yes. 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 Okay, so um, next on to a very confusing part, which is you are the salt of the earth, mm. but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it make, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, reading does salt ever lose its saltiness and it does not yeah <laughs> it's <is> impossible <laughs> and this is what is beautiful because because jesus he he's being a wisdom teacher he's being the basically the rabbinic tradition flows out of uh canonical wisdom and so pro proverbs job ecclesiastes and by the way were you talking about the hepax legomenon the only times where you get words um in Job, you know, and then they're not in the other parts of the Hebrew Bible. Some of the words are in rabbinic literature. Hmm. And that's how we know what they mean. Interesting. <laughs> so it's Interesting. that whole, and then Jesus, the rabbi, is using this. I, I like that. It's a riddle. And you, and you solve the riddle. Hmm. You can't. Right. <laughs> they can't lose its saltiness. But if it were, if someone, if you, if somebody, somebody loses who a sense of who they are, or if the world loses what humanity's supposed to be, it's worthless. Worthless. It's nothing. It's you're just an animal. But it, it's also it's not possible. It's not possible mm -hmm. because you're made in the image of God. Yeah, and it's going back to this idea of. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. We bear his image, just like the coins bear Caesar's mm -hmm. image. People bear the image of God. So give give to unto God what is God's. Interesting. Yeah. And um, I was also reading somewhere else, too. You know, you're the salt of the earth. Mm. Um, salt is a preservative. Um, 
because a lot of people use this in the context of making things taste better, <laughs> which is true. Salt does make things taste more like itself. Like, so um, I'm a baker, so I use a lot of salt in my baked goods to make it taste sweeter because it makes sweet things taste sweeter. Mm-hmm. Um, makes savory things taste more savory. Um, but it also preserves things. And when at the Shabbat table, when you give people um, bread, the challah, um, you add a little salt to it because salt was given with the sacrifice at the temple mm-hmm. um, to preserve the meat. Yeah. And um, so it's the it's a preservative to basically. Well, the article I was reading was more about like tikkun olam, like mm-hmm. keeping the earth um, repaired, yes. repairing the world. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so we're there to um, preserve the earth in the in in the sense of preserving it for the purpose in which it was created. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a perfect. I mean, now that that Jesus has identified the requirements of the kingdom of like, Hey, you want, you want to encounter the kingdom of heaven? Blessed are you when you are embodying these, this state of, Mm. you know, and it's, and once now that he's positioned humanity, then he, he's commissioning them. You are the salt of the Mm. earth and you are the light of the world. So, Mm exactly to what you're saying about you are the ones who steward the earth. You, you're the ones that give, you know, the exactly the tikkun olam of the, you restore. Mm-hmm. You're part of the redemption of the world and the healing of the world. Hmm. Because, um, you know, when it's in my TikTok, <laughs> I talk about, you know, how the second day of creation, uh, there wasn't any, God did not create anything. He only separated mm-hmm. and he didn't call it good. And he, he needed that separation because he can't exist where there's sin or there's brokenness. Um, but it's like he created man in his own image because he desires oneness with his creation and the re- the restoration of the world is is for that kind of like kind of, you know that pulley system where that heaven and earth come back together again mm-hmm. and that that separation is no more and so the kingdom of heaven is heaven on earth or you mm-hmm. know that oneness again that the, sh- the mime and the mime, there's no longer that shemaim, right? Um, so yeah. for my listeners that don't know, mime means water. and Well, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> Go to my TikTok and find out. <laughs> um, okay. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Um, 
It's very so, interesting because oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, so this this rocked my world this morning. I just need to share it with you because, whew, So as I was going through the Jesus in Context book, and I was, it talks about the light of the world and how in the different pseudepigraphics of First Enoch and Sirach, and um, and even uh, let's see what else. Uh, Testament of Abraham. So all of these um, Second Temple Jewish writings that were written in Greek. Um, it is powerful. The way each and every single righteous person is depicted as being enlightened, just like Moses mm-hmm. when he comes down from the mountain. Mm-hmm. And here, Jesus is... In, in, Jesus is transfigured and bears that in, later on in the transfiguration. But here he's giving that to those who hear him, his disciples, where they are the light of the world. Mm. It's not just about one specific person bearing that light, but also he's, he's calling um, those to, well, you, you know about this, that in ancient Near Eastern iconography the the sun god shamash which is where we get the word shemesh from it's connected etymologically to that um he's the god of justice and the god of the sun Mm -hmm. usually crowns especially they sort of like halos they depict that a ruler has a right to rule and administer justice because they have they have that relationship with the sun <laughs> mm-hmm. they also emanate light mm-hmm. um so when moses comes down in an ancient eastern context an ancient eastern reader would read that and say oh that means that he has the right to give law <laughs> to us mm-hmm. and in some ways like if we're reading it here it's very interesting that if if jesus is being depicted as the new Moses who's giving law on the mountain or giving teaching from the mountain. It's in this case, it's not Jesus is who is being the light. It's his disciples who are said and commissioned to be the light. Hmm. I don't know if that's weird or. <laughs> no, I mean, it makes sense because Moses is on, Moses is in a sense on the mountain with God mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he is reflecting God's light mm-hmm. when he comes down and it would almost be like Jesus is God and they are almost like the Moses that are reflecting his light and able to give the law and the wisdom and the commission afterwards is what I'm hearing. And, and that's definitely one way of reading it, but I have heard uh, Rabbi Yosh mm-hmm. uh, talk about how the city on the hill is a reference to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. <laughs> lit with the the lampstand, who that and everyone could see the the that Jerusalem could not be hidden. It was the city on the hill, right? That could not be hidden, right? Right? Yeah. Yes. And, you know, what's interesting, um, it's funny because it's like, 
he goes on later in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about, you know, doing charity in private and mm-hmm. uh, doing certain things in private so that you're not, um, you know, bragging or, you know, doing that kind of thing. Um, but also let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this goes, you know, to basically what Paul says later, that of dying to self so that Messiah may live in you so that you can't even boast of your own good deeds, that it's him that's shining through you. That's the whole thing is the command is to let it shine. Mm-hmm. Right. And the other one is don't do it. Don't do those things mm-hmm. for this reason. This is the, the command here is, well, you're going to be doing these good works. Don't do the good works to be noticed by people, but let those good works happen. And actually it's you let it shine. You mm-hmm. let who you are shine because as you said, um, or you die to self, and you you don't die to his resurrection. <laughs> like if you mm-hmm. see Jesus in you, you don't die. You don't keep on dying. It's like okay, I'm gonna die to myself, and I'm gonna die to to the resurrection of that right. of Jesus in me. <laughs> no, it's you die to self, and then you let him shine through right. you. Yeah. So this next part. Um, you know, this is, I, I wanted you on for several reasons, but uh, as you probably know, Messianic people in particular love Matthew 5 um, for this next part. And I wanted to um, kind of deny any instinct to have Messianic people on to just kind of hold up this particular part of Matthew 5 as um a club <laughs> um, because it is crucial, but I think that it's important that we have a real balanced view on it. And I'd also like to get your um, impression since you teach this of what your students kind of come in with, because a lot of Christians do know this, the 17 and 18, but don't particularly follow through with the 19 part. Um, so we'll go ahead and read, uh, I'll go ahead and read 17, uh, through 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill for truly, I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yes. So, um, so I think that, uh, you know, first off, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Uh, I th- this is actually a very strict commandment. Do not even think it. Do not think it. And this is because uh, the Messiah cannot be the Messiah if he is not keeping the Torah. 
at all. And we see that in, um, where is it? Uh, Deuteronomy 13, three through five. Mm -hmm. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet. He has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So it would be absolutely impossible for any Jewish person today or in the past to put their faith in a Messiah who counsels them to, you know, res pre or post resurrection to not keep the Torah. Yeah. Um, but the, and then the confusing part is I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And that kind of seems a little bit, um, I don't know, that word seems a little bit abstract, yeah. I think, um, and or ambiguous. And in Jewish context, to fulfill a commandment means to do it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, I have fulfilled the commandment of circumcising my child. I have fulfilled the commandment. I have done it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just curious what your, your thoughts on that might be. Okay. Thank you. So this passage, I see it as a hinge passage between what came before and what comes after. So, and what that means is that you have to read it with everything that's been in mind before everything that Jesus has been establishing, because I kind of feel like not only is it a hinge, it also, it's, it's a progression where, um, where 17 through 20 really it's, it's building up to what he's going to be saying about the acts of piety, um, in six, you have heard it said statements. Well, you, you have heard it said statements and then giving examples of how that comes into practice in chapter six. Um, so com the completing of the law is, as you said, is very necessary. Uh, whenever Now, whenever I see this as a Gentile, I read it with two Mithian passages in mind. Mm -hmm. Jesus' baptism and the rich young ruler. Because as you know, you know, as a Gentile, I am entering in to this just because of Christ, not because of my heritage. Um, Correct. And so for me, I know that Baptism is a Jewish practice, primarily. Um, that especially during the times of like the Qumranic or Essene communities, where people were trying to live Torah, and then you have Pharisees who are trying to live Torah. But especially John the Baptist is could be associated with the Essenes or people who are like the community at Qumran, who were. Um, telling people to redevote themselves to Torah mm -hmm. and to leave their old life, to enter into a new life of rededicating their life to Torah. 
Um, or it was also for Gentiles who were converts mm-hmm. into those communities, communities. And of course, they would be turned away three times <laughs> to say, nope, can't. And But if they persisted, and they then they would be baptized into into the the, the Jewish faith. And um, so for me as a Gentile, when I read this, I read it as Messiah Jesus has completed and fulfilled the law and taken away, well, ultimately, the penalty of the law. Hmm. But this is where Paul comes into the mix, where he says in 2 Timothy um, chapter 316, is it 316, 317, where he says that all scripture is um, God-breathed. Mm-hmm. and um, useful for instruction in all righteousness. Mm-hmm. People usually think of it as the entire 66 books, and even though I have my theology says, yes, all of God's word is inspired, in that particular context, he's talking about the law and the prophets, because by the time the, the writings were not fully canonized until the first century anyway, <laughs> But when people, when Jesus is talking about the laws, the law and the prophets, and then when Paul is talking about scripture, he's talking about Torah and Nevi'im. You know, he's talking about God's law. Um, and he, what he's saying, he's saying that the law has retains its didactic function, even though it no longer has its punitive function. Right. And that's the reason why. Let's get to the rich young ruler. When, when uh, the rich young ruler is told to sell everything that he has, uh, he can't do it. He's like, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. He goes away sorrowful, and the, the disciples say, "Oh, you know, like, well, first he says to the disciples, Jesus says, what uh, it's easier for a camel to go into the eye of a needle.'" than for a rich person to enter in the kingdom of heaven. And then the disciples are like, then who can be saved? <laughs> then who can enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, what is impossible for man is possible for God. So mm-hmm. for me, the way that I read it, and I'm not saying this so that I don't, oh, I don't have to complete the law. I'm not saying it that way. I'm just saying as a Gentile, the way I approach this is that Jesus fulfills all righteousness and also takes away all penalty through his sacrifice on the cross. It's kind of like what Paul says in Romans 7. I died to the law, but also the law is is the law of life. The resurrection is the only thing that can make that those two statements correct. Yes. Is that He's struggling to understand uh, how the perfect and good law of God can be experienced as the law of sin and death. It's There's not two laws. It's that there's two ways of knowing the law or the way he experiences the law. law mm-hmm. I can affirm that God's law is good. Mm-hmm. It also is death to me in myself. Right. But that's why Jesus needed to be embody the law fulfill the law 
and it is in my identification with him, me being baptized into Christ and experiencing, like I experienced the law's death, but now in Christ I experience it as God's good and perfect law. Mm. That resurrection power, I am empowered, not under fear of penalty of the law, but going back to Second Tim- Timothy 3.16, it is useful for all instruction and all righteousness. Yes. Yes. Love that. And, you know, one thing I tell a lot of people, too, is that, you know, the Torah, the law, Torah means instruction, and it assumes everybody's going to break it. Why? Because part of the law is telling you what you're supposed to do when you break it. <laughs> when you break it then you go to this place and you offer this as a sacrifice (laughs) and that's how you you reconcile that whereas we don't need to necessarily do that with that sacrifice of yeshua yeah yeah but when we die to ourselves when we let the messiah live in us so that we can't do any works good works within ourselves and it's him him who does those good works Mm -hmm. It is him who can keep the law. You know, um, it's like when somebody dies in Judaism and you baptize them and you put them through mikvah, you say this person is no, this person can neither keep nor um, break a mitzvah. He is no longer under the law. Mm-hmm. And um, when we die to ourselves, we are no longer under the law. We can neither keep nor break a mitzvah, or uh, um, we can no, neither no longer keep a commandment. It's Yeshua keeping the commandments within us because mm. we've died to ourselves, mm-hmm. and it's His righteousness that we wear, and that He, mm. He, Him living through us is keeping those things. Yeah. So, um, which is a mystery and beautiful, and all of those things. Um, but also, you know, just as there are different laws for Levites and different laws for priests and different laws for men and different laws for women, um, I think it's safe to say there's different laws for Jews and different laws for Gentiles. Yes. And But all of it, knowing what laws apply to whom is also useful just to know and the wisdom behind that mm-hmm. and for whatever reason. And um, But I also believe that people who want to live in the wisdom of doing certain things like keeping Shabbat or whatever it is, maybe keeping kosher, they have, they're more than welcome to do those things as well. So Mm -hmm. now the second part, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The important part is that they're both in heaven. But um, but there is some consequence there. And um, I think that, uh, and I've experienced this recently, Um there can be messaging 
in the church regarding the law that mm-hmm. says the law is gone and the, and people will just make gestures that it's not um obvious it's not um they're signaling like, without being overt exactly it's not overt this diminishing of the law yeah but it's an overall attitude that um especially like among young people like high schoolers can get carried into a theology into adulthood and i'm curious as if that's something that you see as a professor at a christian university oh yes oh yes um the kingdom of heaven especially in matthew heaven is kind of covering God, the, the word God. So he's using it just, and so I wanted to expand this idea of kingdom of heaven. It's not just about the sweet by and by, but it's that and heaven has, as you said before, has now come down to earth. And mm-hmm. so he, that it's about quality of life. So it's this idea of it's not just that they make it to heaven. It's also that, yeah, you might have a relationship with God, and have some sort of uh, benefits of encountering God's rule in your life, but you don't reap all the benefits. You don't reap all the blessedness of of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in your life if you are canceling the Torah. <laughs> <laughs> um so it's very, it's hard because, like, I, I work on a Christian campus, but not everyone is, is has to be a Christian to be here anymore. Um, so when I teach through the Gospel of Matthew, I have to make sure to really, like, throw out a very big net, mm-hmm. kind of to use the metaphor that Jesus uses about the parables of the good and the bad fish that you, um, that Kingdom of God is like a dragnet. It's like a net that's just been cast. And then at the end, God is sorting through the fish. And the same thing, the wheat and the chaff and letting it grow. Hmm. And there's a separation. So it's another thing. So when I'm thinking about this, and and, um, Jesus has a general audience. And even those today who are reading the Gospel of Matthew, it's, it's to everyone who has ears, let them hear. And so God casts out a big net. But at the end, it's up to God with how he separates the wheat from the chaff and the, the, the fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, how, that's how I deal with. Um, but I, I, I hear you that sometimes it becomes problematic because it's like, hey, in Christ, you should be experiencing the benefits of the kingdom, that blessedness that Jesus declares. But because you are not living a life, I mean, you're not using God's word to instruct your life, to instruct you in godliness, you're, you're not reaping those benefits of of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I agree. Good work. 
And then finally, um, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, which uh, can be a little bit confusing. I think that we've, you, well, we, I know that Pharisee has become synonymous with hypocrite, uh, just in our common vernacular. Uh, but many people would say that we can most closely associate Jesus with somebody who would have been on par uh, educational-wise with a Pharisee. Yes, I mean, all of the Christian theology that has to do with the resurrection, it was established, like, there would be no teaching of resurrection in any of the New Testament if it were not for the Pharisees. Yes. <laughs> and, and they were really charged with bringing Israel back to the Torah, the, to the making sure that the temple wasn't just political as the Romans really wanted to make it at the time. So the Romans were in bed with the Sadducees and they were really in charge of the temple sacrifices and all of that stuff. And so the Pharisees were kind of walking around saying, okay, let's make sure that we're still being um, faithful to the Torah and to God and to honoring him with all of our heart and everything like that. However, just as things to this day still do, uh, the more rabbis you get involved, the more technical and more argumentative people get and um, the more restrictions people wanted to put on things to make it more particular and more Jewish. And that and in that way, Jesus perhaps came uh, up against Pharisees. But um, in the next part, which we're going to save for next week, because this we're, we're actually hitting quite a, a a long time here. Um, but he's going to say, you have heard it said, which is from rabbinical teachings. And he is going to actually strengthen the, you have heard it said sayings with, this should be uh, an effect on your heart and on your innermost being and not just yeah. a technicality. Yes. And how you practice this. It's not, it's not enough that you should just practice this in how you live your life, but this should have an effect on your heart and on your mind. So I think I you can correct me if, if I, I'm not familiar with Judaism um, as much as you are, but I believe the term is Musar. The Musar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. So um, very good. So this is so much fun. Now I have some rapid fire questions for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have answers. <laughs> okay. Um, favorite book of the Bible. Job. Well, that was an easy one. <laughs> okay, besides Jesus and Moses, if you could have a conversation with anyone from the Bible, who would it be? And why? Either Naomi or Ruth. I think Ruth because I would have liked to know what made her follow her mother-in-law into another country like what and what what in her experience of that family made her choose like the lord instead of going back like orpha did interesting very cool um okay next question 
if you weren't a Bible professor. Blue sky, you could be a basketball player. What would you be? Opera singer. Nice. Yeah. Honestly, every time I read the passage, you are the salt of the earth, I just think of God's spell in my own. Oh, nice. Salt yeah. of the earth. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then finally, um, no matter what your personal theology on this is, just go with me here. In the world to come, what do you want Leviathan to taste like? Why do I just say chicken? <laughs> <laughs> What kind? Fried chicken. Fried chicken. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me for chapter 5A of Matthew. This was so good. This was so good. I learned a lot. So did I. And I hope that our listeners did too. It was awesome. I really appreciate having you on. And thank you to my listeners for yet another week. Um, as always, you can send your questions to Jesus Curious Podcast at gmail.com. Follow me on TikTok and Instagram at Jesus Curious. And I look forward to talking with you guys next week. Oh, and you can follow me. By the way, follow me and tell all your friends. I am wherever you can find podcasts and Stitcher. That is Apple Podcasts. That's Spotify, all all the places. Follow me. Tell your friends. Love you. Bye. Deeper than the holes in the dark And higher than the stars and dreams Further than time tells a soul You're closer than the breath I met a man who was murdered Raised on a stake like the snake But in Jerusalem And you could see the truth in him And it shone like an innocent child Shone like an innocent child Yet grieved like a man with an adulterous wife He stood in the midst of exile As the kind hand that extends to humanity From the depths of Hashem The walking instructions of him in the dark and higher than the stars and dreams further than time tells a soul yet closer than the breath that you breathe redemption of great israel was born on sukkot grew strong in the instruction Healing in the junctions of darkness Inspected four days and found no blemish Four days and found no blemish One day wickedness Hope to save the rabbis goddess But willfully gave himself over As the ransom lamb of Passover To buy back Israel from the world's disorder First fruit of the resurrection from the dead Your love is deeper than the holes in the So